Welcome to the virtual Ucom Yurt. I am Rashid Gabdulhakov, your host for today. Chat in the Yurt is a podcast in which we discuss Europe, Central Asia developments. What events are unfolding in Central Asia that Europeans should understand? Also, what developments in Europe are of specific relevance to Central Asia? Together, we discuss societal trends, political developments, and economic turns, while also assessing the past and looking ahead at what the future may unfold. A Chat in the Yurt is a podcast from the UCAM program of the Center for European Security Studies in the Netherlands. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn, and also sign up to the UCAM News on the website. Today is a very special episode of the Chat in the Yurt, as we are launching a new rubric called Featured Research. Every now and then, for roughly 30 minutes, it will be a one-on-one with a researcher conducting breakthrough research, interesting um, studies on a variety of topics concerning Central Asia and Europe. Today, our yurt is so privileged to welcome a great, great researcher with a unique line of research, Florian Koppenrat, a PhD candidate in the final stages of his PhD at Humboldt University of Berlin, who is also an associate researcher at the Leibniz Centrum Moderner Orient in Berlin. Florian, a warm welcome to our yurt. Thanks a lot. I'm, I'm honored to be here. So Florian, when we met first uh, in Brussels in 2019 and you know just had a small talk and I asked you what, you are, what are you researching, you told me the economics of hip-hop music production in Kyrgyzstan. And you know, I almost um, fell off my chair right there and then. Um, could you could you tell us, uh, you know, how does someone arrive at studying the economics of hip hop music production in Kyrgyzstan? Yes, sure. So, in a way, each of the the terms of this topic has a story of its own, and uh, the first one was probably Kyrgyzstan, because I was before starting this whole, I'll get, before even getting the idea of starting a PhD, I was working uh, first in Bishkek and then in Osh, mm-hmm. and at some point there. Uh, I asked myself the question, which from my today's point of view sounds a bit naive, of course, uh, is there any hip-hop made in Kyrgyzstan? So mm-hmm. It's a typical question uh, if you're in, in in a place where well, you haven't heard of, uh, of any pop music yet or you expect something particular there. Yeah, I'm sure and, people often ask you now, yeah, when you say that you're researching this uh, of, Kyrgyzstan, uh, one of the first questions might be, do they have it there? Yeah. Sure, sure. And then even from literature, I see this if I read about books about hip hop in other contexts, which are, are similar, often the researchers pick up on that question too, by uh, mm-hmm. is it there at all? So uh, what I did then is I opened YouTube and probably wrote uh, Kyrgyz rap or something like that. And well, I was surprised uh, at the well, the quantity and and quality of what I saw. I think back then, uh, I guess the group, the Rus- Russian language group Troyraznik was probably quite popular. So I guess I, I cannot recall it perfectly now, but I guess I saw a video clip of theirs. Then maybe something of Zamanbap in Kyrgyz language. Mm-hmm. Also, then it was around 2013, 2014, and. Somehow I got this idea in my head that if ever I do a PhD research, it should be about rap in in, in Kyrgyzstan because it sounded, I mean, it sounded fancy in a way, but it also intrigued me a lot actually, and it stuck in my head for a while. Once, yeah. once you started exploring it a bit, Florian, um, did it did it unfold as a vivid segment, as a kind of uh, thriving 
uh, you know, genre of music in, in Bishkek? I'm talking about 2013, 2014. Well, that's hard to recall for me now because I wasn't doing active research then. It was uh -huh. really just, just, was just for fun. Just exposure. I, I just saw that there is something to, to look for further and... Uh, mm -hmm. I went to one concert, probably, but that was from a Russian rapper who was performing there, which was quite uh, underwhelming. Um, <laughs> underwhelming. Uh, <Okay>. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, then I I think it was even so random that my, my parents, because I talked uh, about this idea to them, uh, some Christmas or so, they, they gave me a book about so sociology of rap in, in German and mm -hmm. about rap in Germany mostly, but also about other contexts. Um, research book, I read it. I was Then I was, had my second surprise that that actually can be a very serious topic. And there are actually many people quoted in that book who, who have been doing research about hip-hop music specifically. And that's where the idea kind of came to mature. I went to talk my to my, uh, no, who now the, is my supervisor, Professor Ingeborg Baldauf at Humboldt University. Uh, and she also was excited at the topic to my third surprise. Mm -hmm. And that, that's how the, the idea started. And then the, how the, it turned out to be about production of uh, hip hop music and about Bishkek. That's already, well, in the course of research, the topics that just came out when I was talking to, uh, to hip hop music makers. I see. Uh, so when are we talking about the timeline? So 2013, 14 initial interest then you go back you uh you know you, you get inspired by the book that your parents give you you have the supervisors who you convince that this is an interesting topic and then you re-enter when the uh five years ago <laughs> so five years ago it's, it's quite uh, hard to to acknowledge that's already five years but yeah. um a bit yeah. less than five years actually but for now so how does one get a foot in the door then you know how do you how do you study what is the method i mean do you talk to people, interview, observ observations, focus groups. Could you uh, unpack this topic a little bit? Well, you, you can guess the, that it was quite an explorative kind of research because mm -hmm. except for actually there, there is one uh, one master thesis that was written about hip-hop in, in Bishkek and in Ulaanbaatar, a comparison in 2016, I think, by Libidiev. Mm -hmm. uh, shout out here to him if he <laughs> listens to us. <laughs> um <laughs> And um, except for that, yeah, there wasn't really any research done. So what I did is, because I knew already some people had something to do with culture in Bishkek, I started, when I came in, in May 19, I started talking to them, well, do you know any rappers? And then I got the first kind of interviews. Uh, and, uh, well, then it's sort of, you know, Bishkek is small. And as soon as you know one person, you know, you can potentially know everyone uh, some people so are contacted via so instagram which was helpful because actually the the crowd is also somehow segmented so if you go by snowballing you're, you you might only see one part of the the whole community at the end so it was a bit of uh, yeah picking here and there so the the main source for me was interviews like long term biographical interviews with people involved in hip-hop music, mostly rappers, but also beat makers, uh, what I would call musical entrepreneurs. Then uh, some hanging out in studios as soon as I got some kind of social connection and uh, archival research too, because wow. uh, that was a good um, 
sort of a, a good uh, counterpoint to the you know running after people to go just to the newspaper archive mostly and to look at uh, what was the presence of hip hop music in or how was it shown in the media mm-hmm. also to uh, to cross uh, how to say to cross the data that I get or the information that I get from the interviews because uh, as you know if you've done empirical research people are very bad about remembering dates and uh, remembering exact sequences of events so Definitely. that was also very helpful and how did people react were people um open to talking with you i mean people, your your interview subjects were they excited about being subjects in the in the study in the scientific research or was it difficult to approach them and convince them to participate um besides a few exceptions uh it was fairly easy i mean th- there's a couple of people i would have liked to talk to i couldn't or either because i, I couldn't get the contact data because uh, they had disappeared even from the the connections that I had or or because they didn't want to um most were quite uh open talked to it because I also pro- I mean I started talking to some people which were fairly famous mm-hmm. uh or still fairly famous in Kyrgyzstan um which was a challenge of its own because they you know they're used to giving interviews and they would kind of sure if you read interviews they've been given before you, you can see some patterns that things have been sort of rehearsed by practice so it was even more interesting to talk to to those well hip hop music makers or affiliated people who haven't or had not given any interview or had given one or two interviews in their career um so when maybe yeah. it's maybe it's time to to give a bit of um background you know we say the people the people who are these artists are they uh socially and politically engaged are they more entertainers uh, what is the profile are we talking urban rural maybe you could elaborate on this a little bit <laughs> that's yeah that's the basically the whole second chapter of my, <laughs> my phd let's recite your second chapter <laughs> Um, yeah, it's also an interesting point. Uh, of course, the the profile has changed over time, but uh, roughly speaking, um, the the clearest criteria is the gender one. As always, if you study popular music in any context, basically, it's it's uh, more than ninety percent men, but also mm. some women. Um, then, um, starting nineties, two thousands, mostly. Uh, urban uh, youth, like those who do music, actually, I mean, uh, beats or, or rap music. Um, urban meaning like who was were born and grew up in, in, in Bishkek, the, mm-hmm. uh, Garatsky, as you would say, in mm-hmm. sort of uh, who, who, yeah, who feel affiliated to the city. But after 2005, which was the first big wave of internal migration in, in Kyrgyzstan, probably, mm-hmm. and even more after 2010, um the, the the this crowd in terms of geography became more mixed so you ha- started having more people that migrated to Bishkek and this also goes hand in hand with an increase of of Kyrgyz language rap because before that it was oh, wow. almost all english or russian uh speaking more russian than english but also quite a lot of english um and then well Kyrgyz rap in the sense of Kyrgyz language rap uh, mm-hmm. really grew after 2010 and the other criteria which i found interesting is um it's mostly um in terms of uh socioeconomic profile it's not the poorest people 
who who do this because mm-hmm. I guess they don't wouldn't have the the spare time or the the spare space uh, or the resources to actually engage in such an activity, and it's not or very rarely the richest uh, segment of the population either. So um, middle class. Well, uh, yeah, uh, as as far as you can speak about a middle class in in Kyrgyzstan, that's or in the, any, well, middle class actually is, is the hardest to define, right? I mean, yeah, yeah. In, in, I mean, in it's context, it, it, yeah. You could say yes, urban middle class because they're not necessarily um, rich, or they're not mm-hmm. necessarily like well off uh, at all in the sense of that they have spare money there to do invest. Mm-hmm. But uh, often, you know, children of teachers, okay. children of university teachers who have a lot of, well, cultural capital, if we want to, to use that term, uh, and, yeah, know the city well and feel, and feel what, what And what, what concerns them? What do they uh, rap about? Um, that also has changed over time. I think that the, the in the 90s and 2000s, it was... Uh, or early 2000s, it was a lot about um, how to s- sort of this locality thing in hip hop that you represent your um, well, your part of town, so to mm. say, and this fits it very well in the context of Bishkek and also other um, formerly Soviet cities because uh, you had this division in Turayon. You probably know know the term. Yeah, of course. <laughs> um, and so we're so, people from Jal versus uh, exactly. Rayons and because <laughs> Rayon is this informal uh, territoriality in in the city, and people yeah would identify with the Yuzhny Mikrorayoni or Pishpek, uh, and so on. Yeah. Who are you in your region? Yeah, who are you in Rayon? We don't even ask you. Skakova Rayon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's kind of your informal business card. Yeah. In a way, I guess it was a calc from uh, this what came from the U.S. at that time, uh, and then in the early 2000s, you had a big wave of hip hop, so it became a mass culture in Bishkek between 2000, I would say 2000 and 2007. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, the the topics would also vary. You had you would have uh, braggadocio rap, you know, this representing like Rhyme Dilla. Uh, back then, you'd have Still, this gangster kind of rap uh, oh. with Kigas, uh, for example. You had a cappella, which were probably the most famous uh, group in the 2000s in Bishkek, who went, um, well, who got their successes with kind of, one could say, party rap in a way about uh, something a bit subversive, uh, about sexual encounters and going out, uh, which they then dist- distanced themselves from. Um, and then with the rise of of mostly Kyrgyz language rap, mm-hmm. also yeah, I was just going to ask about that. Actually, um, yeah, did the did the repertoire also change? You, you got the the, the genre, yeah, yeah. It did change. I mean, you had always songs about love, like in popular music. That's kind of a generic thing, but you had this rise of of um, what is being called patriotic rap because oh, wow. it's popular. So it's all about Kyrgyzstan, the great mm-hmm. country, and so on. Um, it is popular, so it lands more with the masses rather than yeah when you when you with rap the, about yeah. a particular rayon. With the the yes, with the masses and with the masses also outside of Bishkek, which wasn't the case before. Mm-hmm. So the the advantage on on the local market, if, if it talks so of Kyrgyz language rap, is of course that you can also reach people well, uh, well in in the regions of Kyrgyzstan, and I think the 
that's uh, so if you want to build it, a career out of it and start you know being a professional musician you would want to switch your repertoire to make it more applicable to the nation more widely partly a part of your repertoire usually the 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 rappers would uh, well differentiate with between songs that they do to gain approval and the songs they mm. do because they want to do them so this this patriotic line is not necessarily uh, necessarily an expression of of the you know inner feelings of of those who write them sometimes it is sometimes not but it does work with the crowds and then if we talk about political rap um you had it also in, in at moments it's not something very predominant i would say but around the the two revolutions mm-hmm. so called uh, 2005 and 2010 and around the the latest uh, change of of well uh, unplanned change of government 2020 yeah. you also had the kind of wave Sudden of coup. yeah yeah um so there you you, you could yeah, have but how is it let's focus on this one because that was really interesting yeah with the arrival of Sadir Japarov who is kind of this uh, a perceived native son right a bit more informal a bit of a maverick an outsider a populist in a way that you know of representing the masses let's say did that translate in rap music as well somehow so supporting mm. him or maybe countering the government uh, it's it's um more it went more in parallel to me the 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 rap didn't really relate to to Japarov directly um uh, I did follow that for for an article I wrote about this latest wave of protest rap in 2000, well, late 2019 and 2020, in the context of economic crisis. Then COVID, mm-hmm. uh, many topics came up, and this spread kind of. There was a big discontent. You had this big, uh, if you remember, um, yes. corruption scandal around Matraimov. Of course. And, um, so that also made it into the rap uh, repertoire. Yeah. So okay. 2020 to me was was quite a, a protest year in, in rap music. So mm. we're talking before this uh, uh, the big protests in October, mm-hmm. and um, so the the concerns which were articulated in these songs, I think, uh, songs were taken up also by Japarov back then, and okay. also the the notion of of national unity was there before. So I think. Um, you could feel how the ground was there from these songs in yeah. the society, and um, but then after uh, Japarov became president, uh, I don't wouldn't know any rapper who, who who became like you would say openly to be a fan of him. It's more uh, again taking this distance from uh, from yeah. From the from the but then, state. how is this? How is this uh, patriotism expressed? Is it then more patriotic about the? What are the themes? What should be people patriotic about? Well, it's about Kyrgyzness a lot. I mean, it's it's in turn with this, uh, let's say, ethno-nationalistic turn of the 2010s, which we can observe in many places, and mm-hmm. also in, in Western Europe, um, about some kind of, uh, yeah, ideal type of uh, of your a nation, the sense of nationalist, uh, so you, ethnicity slash nation, um, about the country having nice, well, the country itself with nice landscapes and about a form of manlyhood probably too, like the mm-hmm. Kyrgyz man as something, mm-hmm. yeah, 
uh, those, yeah. Are there rivalries then between the Russophone and the and the Kyrgyz rappers? Not really. Okay. It's okay. it's one. I mean, I wouldn't. Not really. It's one community, and and they serve different audiences too. So um, yeah. mostly, they yeah. I mean, they hang out. It's not like there is one one community of Kyrgyz language and Russian language rappers. Mm -hmm. So, Florin, you just mentioned uh, you know the, the the shift in narratives during the COVID pandemic and the lockdowns and you were there in Bishkek yeah which on the one hand you know, the lockdown and being stuck in the place can be viewed as a curse but also maybe it was an opportunity for you to be right there on the ground and you know observe some of these unique developments in the field how did the musicians how did the rappers adapt to the situation yeah because we're talking about lockdowns did they take it online did they utilize digital tools to continue engagement with their audiences or maybe not to put any words in your mouth, I will just keep no. it on. Yeah, what, what was happening? What was something interesting during the pandemic? Um, I think the, I mean, the, the music making and music spreading was already very much digitalized before that. So okay. uh, at that point, uh, that was an advantage, I guess. And also what uh, uh, was an advantage that the the whole music economy was operating on, on a very low level unstructured so i had the impression that at least for those who like the music makers themselves who were not dependent on uh on concerts so mm -hmm. the majority of them because they wouldn't be invited to to weddings and so on um <laughs> it didn't really change that much um, maybe for some it even gave some spare uh, time spare space to uh, start a musical career to overthink mm. to sit down at home and write well people would move uh, maybe their recording settings to at home take the equipment with them and just do the recording there um so i had the impression that yeah it didn't have such a big effect at least on on the this music making uh, that maybe had in different context um it did have indirectly though if you because the whole of course wedding segment uh had suffered a bit uh mm -hmm. i mean you have a whole uh, economic well, set of economic activities which are linked to that uh, making videos making photos uh the the moderators tamada and so on the djs for weddings so they of course lost the source of income but the the hardest part of the lockdown in Kyrgyzstan was, was actually quite short so mm -hmm. we had I think one and a half month more or less where mm -hmm. everything was closed but then it opened up quite uh, quickly again in, in the summer of 2020 and that's also when the big uh, first wave of, of COVID hit and uh, with, with very dramatic effects yeah with the uh, dark July was that uh, a theme also in the rap music then the uh well you mentioned the matrimov scandal but maybe also the mis mishandling of the situation with covid did that make it into the topics uh in some songs yes but it wasn't really very you wouldn't have songs about it so to say it was there in some places for example the rapper bigish uh one of the the more famous kyrgyz language rappers uh recorded the song Sayasat in May 2020 well politics in Kyrgyz Sayasat which is sort of this um, yeah political um 
manifesto about everything that goes wrong or that went wrong at that time in Kyrgyzstan, they also mentioned the, the COVID issue, which was linked to corruption because you had this the, back then the discussion about the Ministry of Health buying all kinds of equipment for uh, ridiculously high amounts of money and so on. What? Yeah. But in this song, he also he put all kinds yeah, of topics uh, in the same place. So it was also about the the border issue in Batkin. Oh. Uh, it was about corruption in general. And this song gained quite a big audience. It was it resonated quite well. Uh, so when we talk about audiences, maybe this is a good opportunity to sort of map uh, the position of uh, rap, uh, hip hop, actually uh, in a Kyrgyz creative scene. You've mentioned the big weight or the niche, the large niche that um, musicians that perform at weddings occupy. What is the position of hip-hop artists? What kind of audiences are we talking proportionally? Well, it depends on, on how you position yourself. Uh, the wedding circuit, which is basically the, well, for a long time was the, the main source of income for musicians generally in, in Kyrgyzstan and Central Asia. Um tends to be reserved to, well, Kyrgyz language uh, rappers more than Russian language rappers and rappers who are fairly famous already. Because if you would invite a rapper, it's because, uh, well, he, she, well, I don't know an example of a female rapper would be famous enough, but in that case, he um, would uh, have a standing enough to bring some prestige to, to the wedding. So um, in... All over, you would have, I think, five or six different rappers who could be invited to weddings in just the 2010s. You have people like Dobr, uh, who sort of specialized into this uh, into this activity, Begish and Bayastan, uh, mostly who became relatively famous in the 2010s too. Mm -hmm. um, Araini, to some degree, also uh, all Kyrgyz language. If if you do rap in Russian. Uh, it used to be more difficult. You would go for before the, like the digitalization of distribution of music. Uh, you would have to go for radio, TV back home. That's how Acapella and, and Kigas, for example, mm -hmm. became famous. And then market your um, your concerts, uh, mm -hmm. like concerts, not necessarily weddings, or uh, and go for the what's what's the Music makers themselves call SNG, which is an interesting uh, way of putting it uh, in general, uh, which SNG for standing for the community of independent states, mm -hmm. being used, I guess, as a form of alternative wording for the Russian language uh, world, uh, the Russophone sphere. So uh, mm -hmm. mostly the former Soviet uh, space, but not only. Um, how do they how do they make money there? So you mentioned that the the industry was already quite digitalized, and that yeah, that you don't necessarily gather uh, stadiums to generate an income. How do you make money as an as a hip hop artist in Kyrgyzstan? For for a long time, again, there wasn't besides concerts, maybe sponsoring deals to some degree. There were some cases like that. Um, there wasn't weren't that many opportunities. You couldn't sell music directly, so that's where the the streaming turn, so to say, brought a small revolution in mm. uh, in, in the case of, of music at large, but particularly hip hop in in Kyrgyzstan. So after, well, the, the first songs to be have been put on streaming in, in Bishkek 
were back in 2012, so quite early, but it really became a thing in 2019-20. So the the local um, music distributor opened in 2015 called Infinity Music. Uh, they still operate and they started growing and growing and starting from 2019 they actively went for local musicians to bring them to license their music and to put it out on, on streaming um, and since then uh, there are some musicians who actually can sort of live off their streaming revenue which wasn't the case before just okay. and um that's also one interesting finding in a way because there's a lot of literature about streaming uh, in, in Western European context or in US context, um, very critical of, of you know, how uh, the revenue is distributed, how, uh, yeah, it's it's uh, bad for the musicians or not. Mm -hmm. I mean, you have all kinds of voices. And in the case of, of Kyrgyzstan, because there wasn't really any kind of copyright protection before, exist like on, on paper yes but not uh, working um, it brought licensing into the music economy and it brought the possibility to control the spread of your music and to actually kind of you know filter the revenue so that it goes well, to the distributor mm -hmm. and then part of it to uh, to you so it's I mean I, I end the uh, the frame of my PhD in 2021. I'm, I'm not looking further than that mm -hmm. uh, because otherwise I would never end. <laughs> <laughs> you should, the, you should the, put a cut there. Um, biggest challenge in PhDs. Is, okay, <laughs> now it's time to stop. But at, the, at that moment in late 2021, you could really see this kind of uh, yeah up movement for the, the music yet. Uh, music uh, economy. You had all the uh, many older musicians who came back like who had stopped their career and mm -hmm. now find that they can do it again for example or Kigas recorded some new albums from the 2000s you have one guy called uh, Jach uh, who, who was part of the group 0214 in around 2010 had some success then then stopped and now he he had some uh, quite Quite popular. Yeah, were well, these comebacks songs. successful? These repackagings of repackaging of somewhere, yes. Yeah. Uh, I mean, in this case, it was. Um, yeah, and it's also embedded into new kind of structures that that work with this digital distribution thing. I mentioned Infinity Music, mm -hmm. you have Kur mm -hmm. Kurutai, uh, YouTube uh, YouTube channel, and by now it's also a sort of music label. Um, also participate in this kind of uh, promoting artists with live videos or video clips or uh, distribution. Nice. Florian, um, something you don't do on two PhDs in the final stages, but I have to I have to ask you, what are some of the key takeaways? <laughs> you know, what should we take home as a message from your research? Uh, you mean in in the sphere of Central Asian research or in the field of uh, popular music research? I mean, Whatever you feel like giving us as a take home message. So for five years you studied hip hop in Bishkek, Kyrgyzstan. Uh, what are we walking away with? But <laughs> it depends. Yeah, again, how uh, from what point of view you look at it. If you um, if we talk about what Kyrgyzstan can tell the world of uh, of popular music studies. Mm -hmm. I think it's a, a good example 
of um, I would call some peripheral form of music making, so far away of the centers, the music industrial centers where the major labels are, where all the the money goes to in the end. Um, so how does uh, this music making work in such a context? Um, and there are found many difficulties, of course. So you have issues with collective organization of labor in music. Um, people cooperate to do some projects together musically, but because there is no really structure behind it and there's not mm -hmm. really well, lots of money involved, those connections tend to be very unstable and to fall apart as soon as there are some personal arguments. Um, so this leads to a sort of kind of uh, constant reinventing the wheel, if you want, which is mm. quite frustrating for those who are in the business for long. Um, at the same time, in the past, well, you had this uh, kind of performing institutions i mean performing in the sense uh, as alexey urchak would uh, uh, analyzed for the soviet youth in the 1970s and 80s so performing um some kind of belonging to a political project for the outside but without the content in a way mm -hmm. um for example in early 2010s you had many so-called music labels in Bishkek, which were basically uh, small recording studios of different qualities with a name and a group around them, which would claim to be part of the label. But there wasn't really a lot of, uh, in some cases there was, but on a local level, many cases there wasn't really any promotion work that would be the work of a, a music label in another context. So that's, if it's not too, too specific, <laughs> uh, another... Um, example of, of what is happening in such context and um, if you look from the point of view of more Central Asian studies I think uh, you could say that um, well studying the cultural uh, world or the world of popular culture more, more specifically is a very good point of entry into looking into um, societal processes too because studying studying hip hop in in Bishkek leads you to have a look at okay how did TV evolve in Bishkek how did radio radio stations what happened there what is this whole world around how does it interact with the the music makers the sponsoring the NGOs and so on so um, it gives you an interesting perspective on on how all these things. Um, which would be otherwise studied, but uh, from different perspective, or in some cases not studied at all. So far, absolutely no. I think this is this is something that we urgently require: these new, unique, fresh uh, ways of mm. looking at issues in Central Asia. So I was so excited when I learned about your research that there are so many things under on the bottom of the iceberg tip that go ignored so really glad that you had that revelation in 2013-14 that initial <laughs> interest but in principle how would you describe the state of the creative industry in kyrgyzstan is there any incentive to support this from the state or from international actors or is it more anarchical and just left alone to do its own thing uh, if, uh, if you talk to music makers they constantly talk about lack of something so lack of state support uh, is one of them, lack of support in general. So they would say, I think, 
um, that many things are missing. Uh, at the same time, I'm I'm a bit lucky with that too because the the topic of creative economy has has gained uh, well some political traction in Kyrgyzstan in the last years. Uh, so there there was a law passed uh, in 2022 last year, I think, um, about a park of creative economy, um, and those who are part of this moment movement would see the the creative economy. Uh, or creative industries, depending on how you want to phrase it, uh, mm-hmm. as uh, a promising sector for the economy at large because it doesn't require lots of capital investments, which are not there, but are basically based on on creation, on ideas. Um, this is based on, well, uh, so to say, global spread of a certain this notion of of creative economy, which is very much pushed by the by the United Kingdom mm-hmm. uh, through the British Council Definitely, and so on, yes. and is also linked to discourses that we had in Europe in the two thousands uh, and before, uh, from the eighties in in France and US and uh, well, you have all kinds of different approaches, attempts to 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 see how this creative sector can uh, be well of help for post-industrial societies basically yeah, it's, it's something and, I'm, observe, I'm observing now in the in the media programs here in the in, in the netherlands for instance there is this urge for uh, creative industries scholars sectors uh-huh. students yeah to to really make sense of it understand it and in, but, inform policymakers. to me it's funny that it's having a comeback because it's, it's this this discussion peaked in the late 2000s in, in Western Europe initially and there has been lots of, of critical scholarship about it too because um, there, there are some issues with it in a way uh, the the creative I mean creative economy if we define it as an economy which just rests on uh, creative labor so mm-hmm. a certain form of labor which we can call creative uh, I don't know how far I should go now into theory <laughs> but um as far as you need to so creative in in the sense uh of um as the the french sociologist i very much like about the topic uh, pierre michel menger uh would say uh, creative labor as shaped by uncertainty so it's a form of work where first you don't know when you start working where you going with your work what you're going to do what is going to be the result how it's going to look like and you don't even know how this result will be re- will be received by those you want to give it to so it's mm-hmm. a double uncertainty in a way in that sense a- a- academic work is also creative work by the way and it's Ooh, nice. We're part of this, this makes the the phd very self-reflective also for me and the problem with this kind of work um or on a societal context, is that it is highly uh, unequal in its results. Mm-hmm. So you can have very big difference in terms of income between an output or people who are not that different in terms of quality or in terms of training or in terms of where they come from. Um, and in the end, the profits tend to uh, go to the centers again. Mm-hmm. So yeah, like you talk, mentioned, yeah, with the... Yeah, uh, the music productive centers, and as you described, yeah. And if we talk about uh, music distribution or streaming, the money, most of the money goes to the well, the big music labels uh, worldwide, or to major players in distribution. So, if, uh, for example, 
the there is a well quite quite a well working music distribution in in Bishkek. We're, uh, they do have a a partnership with a big French uh, distribution major, who also some part of the profit also goes there. At the end of the day, so my guess is that is one reason why there is such a a lobbying coming from the West to these creative economies. It's also a lot about uh, trying to enforce copyright protection um, because it's in the interest of of, of the whole system. Mm-hmm. Um, at the same time, the same copyright protection can also be in the interest of the music makers, which is interesting in, in terms, as I mentioned, of structuring the, the local um, markets. But um, yeah, it is... It, it, it is a topic which should be discussed uh, from different angles, including critically and not uh, adopted just like that as some kind of uh, magical Do you uh, do any of that thing. in your research, uh, Florin? I want to engage a bit in that discussion, yes, more in the, the overall conclusions. I mean, that's about that's about the, the political uh, relevance of the topic at the end of the day. So wh- why talk about... Uh, specifically, the the working conditions and the economy of mu- of music production right now, because it's uh, this kind of big empirical study can help um, well shed a certain light on on the topic of how, what are the things that are lacking in the end. And what I see with this law that was passed last year in Kyrgyzstan, it's mostly about a, a, a favorable taxation regime for members of this park of creative economy. So the mm-hmm. idea is, okay, you will become part of the park and then um, you will have very small taxes taken up. So it's about the states getting out, sort of. They won't mess, they won't take your money, you just do your thing and uh, and become rich with it, so roughly speaking. No? And uh, the thing is, if we look at those economies in Western Europe particularly, um, where the economy, the cultural sector has some kind of worldwide prestige and works well, you see that the country has been the case. The states have invested massive amounts of money into promoting the the culture. So it, lots of it lives off of public money. Uh, I mean, there's rap clips in France, for example, which uh, benefit from the the fund of of cinema. To film crazy things, you know, and that become then worldwide famous because it's, uh, it's. But it's you don't see that um, that's being done with public money. So, in all cases, it's it's when you look at um, at arts and culture in general, it's always very much worth looking at. You know, behind the scene, how does this musical piece or this clip come to be? In what conditions? Why? Because then. It, yeah, it, it gives you a key of but understanding. Then after to... these five years of rigorous research, you have become in a unique position, yeah, because you are in a way an intermediary between the musicians and you know the world of science, of course, the theories, but potentially maybe even the world of policymakers. If you can, if, with your uh, research, inform some of the decisions. Do you see that as a prospect? I mean, maybe it's also an opportunity to ask you about your future <laughs> plans. Are there plans to go back to Kyrgyzstan or to write policy briefs or to try to inform the government and decisions? Uh, well, this policy briefs is not something I, I considered so far, but maybe uh, it, it could be interesting. I think I, um, 
one one thing I, I want to do for sure is once I'm done with the PhD, uh, is to go back to Kyrgyzstan, not necessarily for a long time, but to well present my results there and potentially if, if I get the time and, and the resources to do it also make some publication in Russian in the end so that uh, people can uh, access it more directly there like all those I interviewed for for the project um, and they're also engaged with this crowd uh, who, who work on the creative economies because I think it can be a fruitful discussion what's Absolutely. Uh, to to amend maybe something. I mean, I can only give a humble <laughs> my my humble perspective on this. Yeah, but it's an inf- but it's a very informed perspective, and I think that is a very important uh, voice here that could benefit the uh, <laughs> artists <hope> so. <laughs> and potentially the entire creative industry in Kyrgyzstan or in Central Asia. No pressure, Florin. Uh, Florian, thank you so much for this conversation. I have learned so much and uh, I'm sure that our listeners have done as well. Good luck finishing up. A good PhD dissertation is a finished PhD dissertation. So finish it up (laughs) and then uh, hope to see you again in person soon. Thank you, Rashid.